Deus ex machina, or God from the machine, is a writing technique used to resolve a story that would otherwise be unable to be resolved. The idea comes from ancient Greek theater where there's a main character or protagonist, if you like fancy words. He would face an impossible situation and to help deal with it, an impossible solution would be introduced. An actor representing a god would appear on stage with the help of some kind of mechanical contraption that would either lower him down or bring him up into the stage, and he would bring about a better ending to an otherwise tragic story. Some criticize the use of this plot device as lazy writing because the problem is it's not resolved by the main character, but by an outside power that intervenes and saves the day. See, when it comes to our entertainment, we want things to play out the way we can reasonably foresee, otherwise we go online and leave bad reviews. See, we want stories about an average guy or gal you know, who goes through some sort of trial, he fails at first, but then he emerges a hero and rises victorious at the end of the story. Some of you can probably picture a training montage in your mind with Eye of the Tiger playing in the background. But see, when it comes to our lives, when we are the ones facing desperate trials, do we really care to know how everything works out? We get tempted to try and fix things ourselves, but when all else has failed, whether you're a Christian or not, you would happily welcome an outside power, whether it's the universe or karma or a God, to rescue you from your troubles. We are in Psalm 80 today. And God's people find themselves in an impossible situation, and as such, they cry out for an impossible solution, divine intervention. Let your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, we can't say for certain when this psalm was written, but given the mention of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh in the opening verses, the psalm is most likely about the northern kingdom of Israel, since those names often refer to it after the kingdom was split into two. The psalm is located in a section of the book that highlights a dark time for God's people, full of destruction and judgment. So with that in mind, we can speculate that this lament refers to events around 722 BC when the northern kingdom of Israel was attacked and destroyed by Assyria. So if that's the case then, we would have to understand that when the psalm opens up and says of Asaph, it most likely refers to one of his descendants and not Asaph himself since he lived hundreds of years earlier during the reign of King David. Now that's enough background info for you. Let's think about this then. What can we learn from the song of a devastated people from so many years ago? See, their context is so much different from ours. But God's word in this text is just as instructive for us here today at GFC Don Mills as it was for them so many years ago. See, we're not going through what they went through. That much is obvious. But the text gives God's people instruction about what to do when we face any 
difficult situation. We're in such a season as a church. I mean, some of you, particularly members, might be feeling it more than others. You can resonate with the psalmist's desire to see God move in our midst. And even if you don't feel it, James taught us last week that lament is something we can all grow in, right? It's my hope that we will see through this psalm that in times of trial, God's people need to seek his face. In many ways, it's not a new message, is it? But rather a reminder for many of us as we think about our lives as well as our church. In times of trial, God's people need to seek his face. Our three points today are look up, look down, and look around. Lots of looking today. So let's first consider our response. Look up. See, the way this lament psalm opens up leaves no room to wonder where the people are looking for hope. Give air, O shepherd of Israel. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. The refrain, or chorus if you prefer, which gives the psalm its structure, they are all calling for God's help. We'll come back to some of these details later, but for now, notice that in their dark time, God's people are looking up. They say to God in verse 2, come to save us. But why? Why are the people looking to God? You might be thinking, well, duh, I know the reason. It's simple. Their faith has them fully convinced that God is sovereign over their lives. And that's both in good times and in bad times as well. See, in verses 4 to 6, the psalmist lays the responsibility of their current trials at God's feet. He isn't necessarily asking, why has this happened to us? He seems already convinced. He says to God, you have done this. To paraphrase, he says, how long will you be angry with your people? You have fed them tears for bread. You have given them tears for drink. You have made us a joke to others. But it wasn't always like this. Since their nation is being destroyed, in verses 8 to 11, he calls to mind their history when their nation was first established. He uses the imagery of a vine and vineyard, or viticulture, there's another fancy word for you, that was familiar back then to describe what God did for his people. Let's look at what he says. In verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt. He's referring to the exodus under Moses when God delivered his people out of slavery. See, in their dark time as a people, Yahweh revealed himself as the one and only true God and delivered them from the strongest nation back then, Egypt, with amazing miracles. He then goes on to say, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This is referring to the conquest under Joshua. After delivering them out of Egypt, God brought them to the land of Canaan like he promised, drove out the other nations, and established them in the land. 
The branches and shoots spread into the sea and river here are references to the borders of the land that God had given them according to his promise in Deuteronomy 11:24. We read there, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western, that is the Mediterranean Sea. The imagery here is of something that has been firmly established. And the psalmist confesses that it was all God, their deliverance, their conquest, and their birth as a nation. You did this, he says. And see, whenever a vineyard was planted, the owner would typically build some sort of wall or hedge around it to protect it from thieves and wild animals. Now, I obviously didn't live back there, and I don't have a vineyard, but there are many illustrations in the Old and New Testament that teach us this. God was gracious to us city folk, wasn't he? See, carrying on with the imagery, the psalmist turns from the past back to the present in verses 12 to 13, and once again, he lays their troubles at God's feet. To paraphrase again, he says, after all you have done in planting the vine and building a wall around it so it prospers, why have you now broken down its walls so that it becomes easy pickings? He reflects on what has happened, and he acknowledges that God has always been in control and still is. But we have to be careful here. Of course, he knows that God isn't making their enemies do anything. They, they're attacking them for their own reasons and are responsible for their own actions. And yet, he recognizes the sovereign hand of God in it all. The author of Ecclesiastes affirms this when he says in Ecclesiastes 7, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He has made the one as well as the other. In both instances, he has never be stopped being God and in control. So what do we learn here? In times of trial, God's people need to seek his face. We respond to our trials by looking up to this God. But if you're listening and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, well, why would I look to someone for help who could have stopped it from happening in the first place, but didn't? To be honest, you might be a Christian and still have this question. I think it's a good question to wrestle with. See, I think the seasons of trial in our lives expose any notion of fairytale-ness, that's not a word, but it exposes any naivety we might have of our faith or of God. See, they force us to face the fact that, in the, that the reason we suffer is not because God has somehow lost control in those moments. He has always been in control. See, being a Christian does not equal prosperity. And having faith does not mean that God will always keep his hedge of protection up. 
Lord willing, we'll hear more about that next week. But friends, listen, if our theology and our faith is to be biblical, we must confess that our good and loving God remains sovereign over our suffering while still being good and loving. Does that stretch your faith? It should. I know it stretches mine. But that's what we find in the Bible. That's what we find in our very text. The psalmist, in response to their trials, looks up to God, acknowledging that both their previous blessings and current hardship are from his hand. See, our laments would be pointless without recognizing this. Biblical lament assumes the sovereignty and authority of God over our lives. So when you find yourself in particularly difficult seasons, how do you respond? Do you pull up your bootstraps and go through your own training montage? Because by golly, you will overcome this mountain yourself. Or do you tend to look at other things like political leaders and emergency laws or medical experts and new vaccines or tech moguls and new technology and Hollywood stars with their new shows? Or do you say with the psalmist in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. My help comes from Yahweh. We're not looking to the God from the machine to save us, but rather we appeal to the God of the universe who always in control in the good and in the bad. Brothers and sisters, when we encounter trials, we need to look up. God's in control. He's always been. This doesn't absolve us of our responsibilities, but ultimately, we can't put our trust in other things but in him alone. So after looking up, let's consider our request then. Look down. So far, we have considered the psalmist's assessment of what's happening. The people are facing an impossible situation, and so they respond by looking up, hoping for an impossible solution. But notice that they don't just throw up their hands and say, well, God is sovereign, right? He's the sovereign God. He controls everything, so what's the point? Let's just resign ourselves to whatever happens and let it be what it be. Que sarah. Now, resigning ourselves to God's sovereignty in times of trial sounds godly, but we have to be careful that it's not simply pride or unbelief dressed up in Christian clothes. What I mean is this, when God's people are facing an impossible situation and yet we aren't moved to prayer or don't expect God to move to act, then there could very well be a disconnect between our beliefs and behavior that needs to be addressed. See, even while acknowledging God's control over their circumstances, the people look up and make their request known. God, look down. But why? Why should he look down? Let's consider this in two parts. First, we make this request because we are dependent on him. One of the obvious marks of lament is the helplessness and dependency that drives us to our knees as we cry for help. 
And in our psalm, there are many instances where we see this, but the most obvious is the refrain in verses 3, 7, and 19. Did you notice during the scripture reading that there's a rising crescendo in the psalm? Perhaps to symbolize the growing desperation of the people. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Verse 19, restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. What are they asking for? They are pleading for God's attention, for him to look down and see their affliction. Let your face shine that we may be saved. James touched on this idea a little last week. See, when the psalmist is referring here, what the psalmist is referring here, referring to here, God help me, is the blessing that God told Aaron the priest to proclaim over the people of Israel. In Numbers 6, we read this, that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance or face upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. The Bible talks about this even about earthly rulers. For example, we read in Proverbs 16, in the light of a king's face, there is life and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. See, the idea is that the fate of the subject is dependent upon the face of the king. So when his face lights up, a metaphor for his favor or kind disposition towards you, it signals blessing from the king. Similarly then, God's shining face means his blessing, his favor, his help. In the midst of an impossible situation, the people need an impossible solution. God's face to shine upon them so that they will be saved and restored. They recall the blessing God spoke over them in the past and cry out for that blessing once again. One of the most popular moments of the Star Wars saga is in episode 4 when Princess Leia's distress message is delivered by the robot R2-D2. Some of you are like, he's speaking a different language right now. But some of you are tracking with me, I believe. Uh, the hologram message says this, This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. You're my only hope. Have you ever felt that kind of desperation before? A lot of us, if we're honest, we probably exhaust all other options before we would even think of crying out to God desperately like this. But isn't it sad that we can often see prayer as a nothing left to lose last resort rather than the first thing our hearts do? I mean, God does give us wisdom and discernment to deal with issues we face, but if you're like me, it's a lot easier to follow what others say or do rather than to turn to God, to turn to pragmatism rather than prayer. 
But this text teaches us not to forget that we are dependent on God. That's true no matter what circumstances you find yourselves. And may He help us to grow in humility so we, we don't wait until desperate times before we realize that we are dependent on Him. We ask God to look down because we depend on Him, but does our dependency guarantee that He will cause His face to shine upon us? After all, we are all dependent on God as, as creation as a whole, whether or not we admit it, since He sustains all of life as we know it. No, friends, our confidence to request God to look down is not only because we depend on Him, but more importantly, because He, in turn, is committed to us. He is committed to us. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 16. Verse 14 here marks the turning point of the psalm. You can see it in the way he piles on his requests. Turn. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard. Take notice, he is saying. And did you catch why he's asking God to intervene? He says, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. When God delivered his people out of Egypt, he called them collectively his son. The psalmist pleads with God on the basis of the relationship that God himself had initiated with them. You planted this vine. You made this son strong for yourself. In fact, the psalm begins in verse 1, focusing on relationship and revelation. See, first he refers to God as the shepherd of Israel. Because over and over again in the Bible, God reveals himself to his people in that way. For example, I think a lot of you remember Psalm 23, right? How does it go? The Lord is my shepherd. He then refers to God as you who are enthroned above the cherubim. Again, this is linked to revelation that God had given of himself. See, when he was given instructions to Moses and the people about how they were to worship him, he gave them directions about what is called the Ark of the Covenant or Testimony. And on top of the Ark was crafted something called the Mercy Seat, which was placed in between these two creatures called cherubim. I don't have enough time to explain all of these things, but basically think of it this way. The Mercy Seat was kind of like God's throne on earth from where he would speak to his people. So, for example, we read in number seven that when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with Yahweh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. They are appealing to relationship and revelation. Now, when we get to verse 16, the ESV translation does some interpretation on our behalf and makes the subject of the verbs the people's enemies. We read that they have done this and they have done that. But I think it's probably better understood that the subject of the verbs here is God's people themselves. It refers back to verse 14 and I think it's better read as 
It is burned with fire. It is cut down. At the rebuke of your face, they, the God's people, perish. The psalmist is bringing their circumstances once again before God. And do you see what he's doing? He's saying that God's face by which they live or die has been against them in rebuke. So now he pleads that his face would turn to them in restoration. This then leads to the appeal in verses 17 and 18. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. There is some debate here about who these verses are referring to. You know, is it talking about the kingdom collectively, as in verse 15? Or is it referring to a single individual? Is the psalmist playing with words here, since he mentions Benjamin in verse 2, and Benjamin means son of the right hand? Or is he speaking of a messianic figure, a savior of some sort? Well, lots of questions and lots of scholars are debating this. But either way, what is clear is that the psalmist ties God's favor with their deliverance, just as he's been doing throughout the psalm. But what becomes apparent, if you take this verse to be a reference to an individual, as I do, is that the psalm zooms in on a focal figure who will be used by God to bring about the deliverance the people are longing for. This could very well have been a reference to the king back then, but I think it's hard for us reading from this side of history not to think about Jesus. But who is Jesus and why should you care? See, earlier we spoke of Deus Ex Machina, the plot device used to help a character to resolve a story that would otherwise end in tragedy. Now you're thinking you're putting two and two together. He's speaking about Jesus here, so Jesus must be the deus ex machina in this illustration. But friends, you would be mistaken because here's the plot twist. We aren't the main characters in our stories. Friends, we're the villains. We're the rebels. We're the baddies. He's the main character. See, even though Jesus is God, he walked the earth he created like an average guy or gal. Except he lived his life in perfect obedience to the will of God. And he faced trials too. He faced the trial of all trials. And our main character died on a cross with all his enemies mocking him. And he appeared at first like he had failed. But he emerged as a hero when he rose from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin and death. Son of man is a title that this Jesus often used to refer to himself. And Stephen, one of the early Christians who got killed for his faith, was allowed to look into heaven before he died and see the risen Jesus. And he testifies in Acts 7, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of man standing at the right hand of God. Friends, will you believe in the Son of Man today? 
The Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's son gives life. This is the good news, friends. See, God has shown us how fully committed he is to those who turn to him by sending his son. So if you turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, trust in him, you can have the assurance that whenever you look up and ask God to look down, you will always have his attention. Won't you put your trust in him today? See, in their time of trial, the people of God saw his face and asked him to look down. But it wasn't a random request. They were dependent on him and they expected him to act because he is committed to them. And likewise, in our times of trial, we can also seek his face. We can look up and ask him to look down, knowing he is committed to us because of what Jesus has done for us. But I think there's one more lesson we can learn from this psalm, and that is our responsibility. Look around. See, one of the unique things about this psalm is that it is a corporate lament. The psalmist writes these words in the plural, identifying with all the people of God in their time of need. The book of Psalms has both individual and corporate laments, teaching us that when God's people face trouble, it is both personal and corporate. So what's the personal application here? You know, I don't expect if someone burst through those doors, tackled Taurus on the way in, and came in asking for Femi, like, where's Femi? I don't expect you all to get up one by one in movie-like fashion saying, I'm Femi, no, I'm Femi, no, I'm Femi. Unless your name was actually Femi, but I think I'm the only one here right now. No, friends, the personal application here is to remember that as believers, we have become united with one another in Jesus Christ. That's part of what we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. We are part of one body in Christ. Now, this, this applies to all believers around the world, which is why we should uh, pray when our Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted. But I think this more directly applies to our brothers and sisters here at GFC that make up this local church. See, the Bible uses the imagery of body parts to show us how connected we have become. This is why we strive to take membership seriously here. We are so connected that the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He then writes to the Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We should be deeply invested in the welfare of one another. I'll confess, I personally fail at this. But it's what the Bible calls us to. And if you're a member here, it's what you have affirmed in the membership covenant. So let us strive by the grace of God to obey it. So do you think of and check in on your brothers and sisters often? Do you lament with those who are hurting and labor on their behalf in prayer? 
Are you quick to meet a practical need that you're able to? How can we grow in these ways as a church? See, when God's people are going through trials, we need to seek his face. And our responsibility is to look around at our fellow brothers and sisters and intercede and lament with them. But I believe there's also a corporate application here. After all, this is a corporate lament. So what else can we learn here as a church? In times of trial, we, our responsibility is to look around as a church and be mindful of where we find ourselves. You know, church isn't just somewhere you go to on Sundays. Friends, if you have faith in Christ, as you gather together, you are the church. If you are a member of this body, you should care collectively about what's going on here. GFC is coming up to 12 years since we were planted. Hasn't God been good to us? There's a lot to be thankful for. He took 18 people meeting in the living room and turned it to this. He has brought about growth, conversions, and baptisms. He's answered prayers sometimes in mysterious ways like providing the L3C during a pandemic. We have gained new elders, new friends, and new families. But there have also been challenging times, haven't there? There have been disagreements. There have been church hurt. And people have left for a variety of reasons, and some of us still feel the vacuum. For those of you who've been around for a while, our church looks different. You'd only need to look and see that our acting elders from about two years ago are all currently not in office. Again, that's for different reasons, but I can relate with those who feel disoriented about where we are right now. But listen, friends, the question is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond? Will we just talk and vent? Or will we retreat and become jaded? The psalmist in Psalm 80 tells us that this is also from God's hand. Again, we're not absolving anyone of responsibility, but we have to believe that God has been and still is in control. If that's the case, why don't we keep looking up to him? Have you been praying for our church? Why don't you ask the sovereign God to look down and see, to have regard for this little church that he has caused to grow? Because he is committed to us in Christ, I believe we can confidently apply Paul's words in Philippians 1 to ourselves that we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, let's pray for our church. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray for our elders. Let's pray that our God will cause his face to shine upon us and restore us. And I don't mean restore in the sense of taking us back to any so-called good old days. 
I mean that he would encourage the downcast, comfort the broken, convict the sinful, strengthen the doubting, and bring the wandering back to him. To some, it might feel like we are in an impossible situation and are in need of an impossible solution. Well, look around. We are a gathering of redeemed sinners. As Jesus said to his disciples who wondered who can be saved, he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God has already done the impossible by saving you. Do you still doubt? Friends, in times of trial, God's people need to seek his face. We respond in our trials not by trying harder or by putting our hopes in others, but by looking up because he is God and he is in control. We then make our request to him, asking him to look down because we depend on him and he is committed to us. And as a people, as a church, we have the responsibility to look around and enter into lamenting with one another. See, no matter how dark the night gets, we can always have hope because we are held by the Father of lights. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.